are listening to Chugga Talk with Ryan Murphy, a podcast by Pull Across Made Simple. This episode is brought to you by Saucy Farm. Located in Wiggins, Mississippi, they're the premier Australian stock horse stud in North America. Proudly standing are Ballon Down Zorro, Hayden Satellite, and Stonebrook Finno. Ballon Down Zorro has fresh, cooled semen with a live full guarantee. Hayden Satellite and Stonebrook Finno have a limited supply of frozen semen. Ballon Down Zorro offspring have proven time and time again that athleticism, endurance, speed, and intelligence are just a few of the qualities his offspring possess on their way to close to 200 Best Playing Pony Awards. Zorro offspring are also exceptional in hunter-jumper and eventing discipline. Hayden Satellite comes from the famous Hayden Horse Stud in Australia and is currently proving himself on the polo cross field. Satellite offspring were awarded Best Playing Horse in international test matches in 2019, and his offspring have now started to make a name for themselves in the jumping arena. Stonebrook Finno is the premier sire in Australia for polo cross. Saucy Farm is near and dear to my heart by purchasing our two stallions two years ago karen and charles have carried on the legacy of my family and the hard work that my mother put into bringing the australian stock horses to the united states for the sport of polo cross all four of my horses are a result of that breeding program and you just can't go wrong saucy farm and australian stock horses the breed for every need you can find them on facebook or call 228-263-0930 are you a polo related business chucka talk has a truly global audience to learn more about advertising here email me at ryan at polocrestmadesimple.com space is limited on this episode of chucka talk you'll meet my good friend daniel johnson we discuss in depth his challenges and successes as chief umpire of the apa we discuss world cup streaking drag show performances and more here on chucka talk the goal is to shrink the pole across world by connecting people together and most importantly to provide education by interviewing players from all over the world so listen closely and enjoy okay so to get things started I think you're wearing a very appropriate shirt. <laughs> Talk about umpiring. I go into my little container that has all these shirts and jerseys, and I try to figure out what makes the most sense. Well, it's obvious that that isn't in the United States umpire jersey with the checkerboard pattern. Graham Bennett has his own. I like it because it zips in the front, very lightweight. I think we're very old school with our polyester shirts here in the States, our tight, thick polyester. Yeah. So, That's what they uh, have at Academy. I don't they think do. they have polo cross specific ones it's more like a you know we get the baseball ones or the whatever they have at walmart kind of a thing welcome to the podcast this is awesome yeah i'm kind of excited when i first did a podcast you called me and you gave me some advice you're kind of into the podcast thing or you, you put things together yourself you're very technical videos for the umpiring program you listen to joe rogan you're a big joe rogan fan yeah uh-huh. he's great he's the best this is great that we get to talk there's so much to talk about with polo cross but we're gonna hold off on that for a second where are you right now i'm in Beckley, West Virginia, and we just moved to a different town. We were currently in the only county in West Virginia that was in the red zone with the COVID. Whatever we picked up there, we're bringing to one of the green zones. (laughs) I am working on power lines in the mountains, spraying power lines with a helicopter. You do crops often. So yeah, just explain what you do. And this is what kind of got me out of polo cross originally is whenever, just like a lot of people, whenever they kind of pretend to be adults for the first time, they go out into the world and real life kind of 
takes priority. I use a helicopter. I don't do crops anymore. Now I only spray the vegetation underneath power lines when it's growing too close to the lines in very hard to get to areas. So in the mountains, real steep areas where they can't use their normal means of dealing with it, whether it's a backpack cruise or some sort of tractor or something. West Virginia has a lot of that. They sell their coal all their coal that they have, they sell through power lines to other states that don't want to have coal power plants. And so they still have coal electricity. They just buy it through the power lines. So some of the biggest power lines, in fact, the biggest power lines in the country are here in West Virginia, even though there's no people here. So right. of nowhere, it took us about uh, an hour and 45 minutes to get out to where we're working this morning. We'll go back out there this evening and try to work for another hour or two when the wind calms down. So I have this middle of the day kind of lull, which is normally like safety nap time, which is what I <laughs> tell my customers so they don't bother me. There's a lot of times where the weather bothers or the weather holds you up enough that you're sitting at a hotel for two or three days in a row just doing nothing. Back in the old days, whenever I was chief umpire, I used some of that time to do either daily or every other day. Those and I use that middle of the day time to edit and make a five minute video of whatever the topic was that day. How long is this contract for? How long will you be here? Because it's obviously not your main, you don't live there. The trees have to be at a certain state of their growth for them to be, we only spray maybe once every seven or 10 years. If you don't get everything, now that tree's 14 or 20 years old by the time that you're coming around to that spot again, and you, mm. can't, you can't have that. So you have to start late enough in the season that everything is greened out. And as soon as things start hardening off for the winter, you have to stop. Um, beginning of July and middle or end of September, I'm gone. I'm away from home. We work every day that we can. The weather allows us. And then for the rest of the seven months out of the year, I am pretend to be retired. I don't go to work. I don't touch a helicopter. I chase my kid around the soccer field. Just play. But the bad thing about that is that's pretty much the polo cross season. I get to hang out a little bit at the early part of the season. Some of the spring stuff that would normally be there, I would go be able to participate in. But there's places that are still cold that time of year. So I haven't been to Minnesota, which I used to live there. I haven't been right. to play to play or hang out with those guys in years years and years or Colorado or a lot of those tournaments that they don't have early spring tournaments. So I kind of uh, distance myself for that summer part of the year. Well, you've got the Lone Star tournament in October, right? Yeah. And I'll probably by then, depending on the season, I'm normally back yeah. early October. We, we have to give some background here. You're the husband of Dory. How uh, I'm best known probably. Nah, well... <laughs> you you come from a family dynasty of the Johnsons. Dory is obviously a legendary polo cross player. We can talk about her. Tell us how you got started with polo cross. I started when I was nine. I was the first one in my family to play polo cross. When did you start? When did your family start? My dad and so Paul Johnson, Prissy Rummel, Heather Shuttles, which is Robbie Shuttles' wife, that whole group of people. My dad has four siblings and uh, three of the four, so four of the five of them were horse people driving down the road and they saw this interesting thing on the side of the road. And it was, and my dad would have a better description of this because I think I was five years old. They pulled up and they did cowboy polo. So brooms and blow up ball. And they had a guy come down to show him polo cross. I think he was from Colorado at the time, polo cross only in California, Arizona, New Mexico, and Colorado. It was real early days, I think 89-ish. It was in the 88 maybe is okay. the early days. So they had a rule book and that was it. And they had one guy that had seen it before kind of a thing. So they'd go out with no bell boots or hits and Western saddles and that rackets that they would scrounge up, the ball would stick about three quarters of the way out of the racket. So I think and people would fall off and get bucked off and kicked every practice, I'm sure. There wasn't anyone to watch or play against. So when my dad and his 
core family group, his siblings started getting into it and there was enough of them they could play. Uh, I think the first time they went up to Colorado or New Mexico or somewhere up there just to watch. And they just yeah. drove up there just to be at a tournament. And then I think they brought their first team up there maybe in 89, the first time they could test themselves. As the years went on, I started playing early as a kid, scared, you know, crying probably. My younger sister and I played on a team as juniors a lot of times with some third person. In the Texas area, at least, growing up, there was Jay the Snake and Rowdy and Tanner Canazy. And they were like a year or two ahead of us, way better than us skill-wise. They were the only other juniors out. It was one section against another one at every tournament. That's the only games you would play. And they'd beat us every time. My sister would be crying and... But that was youth pull across for me. As I grew up, I did uh, the International Youth Exchange. I think first I did it over here against the incoming team, maybe in Colorado. And then I went to Australia on a team probably the year after you, maybe? So 2000? Oh, I have no idea. 98. Oh, yeah, it would have been 2000 because it was when, yeah. the world, when the Olympics were in Australia, I think. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. In fact, Robin, you, Robin Heather and I were there. Yeah, same we saw summer, you over there. I remember, didn't Cody Gosh hit a car with his, at Musclebrook, hit a car with his horse? Was that? Yeah, Cody, Cody crashed into two cars with his horse <laughs> that weekend, one of which an ambulance was leaving the field with a girl with a broken leg <laughs> from a different field, and the father that was very upset was in a small car following the ambulance and he <laughs> took the front end of the amb of the car. And so the dad was having a really bad day. It was one of those things where he'd go really fast. We were like those like badass C grade kind of professionals, you know, yeah. where you think you're good. He was doing this sidearm shot as he was flying out of the back line. He takes a look at the goal, but looks forward. He's hitting the car. And I think it busted a hubcap and dented the car. And the guy had to leave. Cody's horse was fine. And the next, I think he hit a lorry. He hit the front end of the lorry. <laughs> But they say you can't, you couldn't hit the broadside of a barn. Well, he was hitting those lorries. Those are big trucks. This is at Terry Blake Blake's place, Musclebrook. Yeah, uh, that was the first time that I saw a polo cross to that scale. I think they had oh, nine man. fields going to manage that as a tournament organizer or the umpiring or any of that. I, I don't even, I couldn't begin to understand how they manage it all. We fast forward 10 years into the sport, roughly 99. I show up, uh, I go to SMU nearby, same school that your dad went to. At the first practice, Martha and Prissy, they said, I'm sick of playing against Paul, my brother. And they had me playing opposite him every time. If he was the two, I was the two. If he was the three, I was the one. How were um, you in skill level at that point? Were you any good at that time? Started A grade 98. So you, were in, I you had already been at Orphan Ranch. So I wasn't super refined yet but I was getting there and your dad really forced me to get tougher and smarter and all that. But I basically got him off their back, which was, they were happy. Yeah. I think my dad from the start has always been the kind of player that you feel like is on top of you all the time, which is very frustrating. I think it makes you play a smarter game too. Cause when you have that person you up, that's really good at positioning their horse, no matter who they're on to get that angle and yeah. get it early. It makes you think about the play to get around that player. And it, you're not going to get away when you should, you're going to get covered up and look like a fool so i want to ask what's it like growing up with a father who is like the most the most intelligent person in, that you know most intelligent person in polo cross he's playing chess we're playing checkers that's he's always looking through me as if he's thinking something else or making fun of me in his mind so what was it like growing up with that well because growing you're, up you're obviously so, very smart so so growing up i remember when I was either barely playing or not playing yet, they didn't have anybody to learn from and they wanted to get better, but they didn't have anybody that was any good. So my dad is a homicide detective mentality person. He and the rest of the Lone Star crew 
would video every practice. And then after practice, we'd go over to Prissy's house or someone that lived nearby. And we would watch the video almost in slow motion and analyze every little thing. And there'd be these heated arguments on if you should bounce it right on the line or right after the line. And they'd rewind to different examples of when it worked or when it didn't. So they kind of analyzed the game. I think that's where a lot of his strategy comes from, is from this analytical thinking. And then growing up, early on, he and Teak Elmore, who kind of owns Waldemar, um, were the good ones. And Teak was a one and my dad was a three. And that's kind of who you went to go watch. That was, those were the only people out there that were the stars at the time, if I remember right. But there was a time when I was growing up that I got good horses from them, of course. I remember specifically being some brat kid, maybe 15 years old, or being on one of his best horses, being at practice. And there was a time where I felt like I was better than him for a second. And I like held the racket out to where he could almost reach it and taunted him with it. And I felt like a man. And that was my coming of age story. Yeah. yeah, It also describes a very mature series of events. But in my mind, I remember a specific moment. I can picture the direction we're going down the field and everything. Me being a jerk thinking all of a sudden I was, I was good. And I don't think I ever really was good. I think whenever I came up, I went from like C grade really quickly and B grade and then would play on the A grade team. But I'd be at like a one, Robbie would feed me a bunch of balls. I had good players all around me, Renee and my dad and Prissy and these people that were way better than me would make me look better than I should look. And there original times where I would do something flashy and I would feel like I was good. That would just erase all the missed free shots at goal that I had just done. And that one stupid fling shot that went through the post made me feel like a hero. (laughs) I think looking back, I used to think I was really good. I probably wasn't as good as I thought. Speaking of your father, uh, 2001, you came with me to to the UK and I feel like the chicken shed comes up in every story. Yeah. So uh, there was this interesting night where you thought your dad went to sleep. He had some very serious rules for you. So talk about that real quick, just because we need to connect to the UK people. Yeah. So my dad, he's a homicide detective at the time, very into things being right and wrong. He doesn't want you to drink alcohol, smoke cigarettes. He doesn't do any of that stuff. But if you're of age, well, it's your problem. But if you're not of age and he's, you get caught growing up with him, like if I had ever got caught going to a party in high school or something, I'd probably get kicked out of the house. <laughs> and he was very firm on if he were to discipline me, it was there wasn't any talking your way out of it. So we were in Australia and we did some demo at some fair somewhere, if you remember. But Australia or the UK? I mean, UK. Yeah, 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 yeah UK, yeah. yep. Yep. And we had some demo right after like a motorcycle event. Yeah. A field. And we'd walk around and I think I was 18 at the time or I was like 17, almost 18 at the time. And there you could drink. I mean, if yeah. you're 17 there, nobody's even going to car. But, so we would go around drinking at the pubs and have a good time. And my dad let me know that, hey, he's paying for this trip. Even though it's legal over here, no drinking. And I was like, oh, yeah, no problem. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Well, we're there with all our friends. The chicken shed's all bouncing around and yeah. some disco and having a great time. And there's one head with my bottle of wine or I probably had like a bottle of white wine I was dancing with. And I look at one head that's not bopping around with the rest of them. And he points at me and has me come outside. At this point, we had a six player team. We were doing a test match like the next day or the day after. England did not have an alternate he brought me outside and said you know the rules you know what I've talked to you about uh in the morning you need to wake up and feed the horses and then I'll give you your train ticket you're out of here and with my tail between my legs I was just oh no how embarrassing that now the United States can't represent themselves because I'm an idiot you weren't Uh, an idiot but yeah you're fine well because I'm participating in what everyone's doing yeah against the rules. The next morning I woke up and fed the horses and was kind of looking around for my shuttle to 
embarrassment and that was said and I was just kind of quiet. There was never ta- any talk about it after that. He let it go. It's first and only time I think in my whole history of him ever not following through with something. I was very scared. Uh, but we played the test match, embarrassed ourselves. I'm sh- I think they were going to play eight chuckas and we were losing yeah. so much they quit after six. <laughs> Do you remember right? It was a men's team. Yeah, it was not a hard, hardly selected men's team, but we had a great time. I mean, they're, they're tremendous hosts. In yeah. that situation, they had invited a men's team over, and the APA either dropped the ball or, for some reason, didn't accept the invitation. And when my dad got wind of it, he just started calling people. I would say four of the six people on the team were probably B-grade players, and they were just going to go over for fun. So we had Mike Underwood, Tanner Canese, me, you. Was Greg Veet there? Yeah. I'm pretty so, sure, yeah. So we had a group of people that probably weren't our World Cup team. UK didn't care. They put some pretty good people up. I think we played against Hamish Michael and Simon Shearing and uh, a bunch of people. Guy Robertson. Yeah, Yeah, I think so. A lot of people that were a lot better than us. Yeah, that that quite often happens when you go to other countries as an American. Well, I think you and I remember them coming over here and feeling very similar (laughs) feelings. Uh, At least I do. Yeah, We got beat pretty bad over here, too. Oh, that's for another day. That's depressing to talk about but <laughs> I think it made us better in some way that we'll think back to one day so let's talk about Dory she's on two World Cup teams 2015 yep. 2011 she was on the team with me you guys had a very different horseback riding upbringing she has properly trained English she did games you come up with cowboys in Texas but when I think about the two of you you're both the most likely to ride a horse bareback in its pen at night very brave describe uh, when you met Dory and at why World you Cup 2000 no not World Cup Nationals 2003 I was there on an A grade team we ended up winning not because of me I just got to have a buckle because I got the participation buckle <laughs> I was pretty outgoing then and single and full of myself. And I would go up to strangers and treat them like they were people, you know, just make it uncomfortable for them and make it fun for me. And I did that with Dory. Some friends of hers said, oh, there's Dory as a car was driving up. And so I grabbed a cowboy hat off of a friend of mine that was standing there and put it on. When Dory, this person I'd never seen before, came out of I said, hey, Dory, like we'd known each other forever. And I gave her a big hug. And obviously it puts her in a situation where she's like, I guess I know this person. Dory at the time was a pony clubber. She turned into an A pony clubber at the time. I think she's a a B. No, I don't know. Whatever she was. A C grade polo cross player, although she filled in in B grade when someone broke their leg that weekend. So we played and I was on the winning A-grade team, so I, and I was 19 and acting like I knew what I was doing. She must have thought that was cool. <laughs> and so I think we had a clinic. My dad and I put on a clinic right afterwards in North, North New Jersey or somewhere. And my dad was going to teach the upper level, and I was going to teach the lower level. And his test to see if you were in the upper or lower was this time drill. Bounce, 10-yard throw. There, yep. And if you can do this little pattern at a certain time, you're in this group. If you can't, you're in this group. So Dory was kind of flirting with me, and she would help me paint the fields and line the, you know, do, do stuff. I'm sure she threw her playing ability just to make sure she was in the lower group, missed an extra pickup or something. And after we hung out that week, she got a, a, an award, a gift from her grandmother for getting, I think, getting her B to go visit her friend in Florida. And she said, you know, I think I might go visit my friend in Texas instead. So she came down to Texas without her family ever meeting me or anything. They sent her down for two weeks. We had a long distance dating relationship for years after that. And that was 17 years ago now. Uh, Gosh. Long time. We were kids. You've been together 17 years. Yeah. 2003. Dang. dang. That's crazy. When did you guys uh, move to Louisiana? 
right? That was your first place together? No. We didn't want to do long distance after a couple of years. We decided yeah. we didn't want to break up. We didn't want to do long distance. And she didn't want to come to Texas. And I didn't want to go to Washington, D.C. The obvious thing to do is I would take a semester of school there and she would take of school in Texas and then we would have a better idea of what we wanted to do and after a year of doing that I got into helicopters more eventually found a job in Minnesota and first place kind of we had our own place was well aside from an apartment in Austin somewhere is in Minnesota we had several polo cross friends in Minnesota already although they were kind of early on they didn't have anybody to play against really but this helicopter job is actually a truck driver job hopefully to turn into a helicopter job I would stay at the Chamberlain's where they would have their tournaments they have a winery there and I'd stay in their TV room have a two-hour drive to my truck driver job and a state away and eventually I'll stay with the Johnsons Beal Christy Johnson had a hobby farm so Dory moved up after we got married, Dory moved and we had a little hobby farm that we would take care of for Christy, keep horses up there. After two years of that, and oh, and by the way, while we were up there, Dory was training horses and training people, mostly training people. And I didn't make any money, hardly. Being the breadwinner that she was, she would travel to a barn on a Tuesday and a Friday or something. They would schedule a full day of lessons with her. She'd do clinics on the weekends, maybe, and she'd work seven days a week, it seems like. And and made good money. And all those kids that came up from Minnesota, probably a direct impact of Dory getting that whole area going. So then the next job was in Louisiana. She chased me to Louisiana after that, went down there. We got a few people playing polo cross down there. But I think during that Louisiana run, I was going to Alabama to do firefighting in Wiggins, Mississippi and Alabama. Wiggins, Mississippi, where Charles and all those people live. And Dory would do clinics over there. Oh, and the Florida, I think, has a lot to do. Before all this, when we were driving back and forth, we would stop and do a clinic for a week or for a weekend in Florida. It would be an easy drive to Florida and an easy drive to Washington, D.C. or back and forth. And so a couple times a year, we'd have a clinic going on there or maybe in Mobile with the Grand, Grand Bay guys. Not so much me, but I think Dory has a lot to do with the early stages of lots of the current clubs in the United States. Yes. Anywhere in between where she lived and I lived. Think about Minnesota and Grand Bay. They're two of our, our real top clubs right now. I mean, as far as number of kids involved, the, the, the size, they have 20 to 30 members, which is big for an American club. Dory became a celebrity in the Pony Club world doing clinics there. She's extremely versatile. She's a really top dressage rider now, training horses. But she's a fearless polo cross player. She can ride anything. She used to do games. She can vault. And um, so I just remember that about her when I was on that team with her, just how confident she was, how aggressive. That really paid off. I mean, she's probably one of the top women to ever play polo cross in the United States. And on top of that, to hear how many people she's influenced in such a positive way, that's awesome. So. I think her attitude is very charming and addicting. I think because she brings so much into it, she if she, you're doing a clinic with Dory, she might be miserable and having an awful day. And she walks out there and she puts on this face of this happy, bubbly, really motivated person. And she can do that all day long. People that walk away from the clinics, I think are more into the game, maybe not just because of that, but one of the reasons is because of that is because of her attitude. She really makes it fun. And she's kind of a crazy person, which I feel very strongly about. She <laughs> she's is somebody, right now. Yeah. She's somebody that is very 
very driven. She's somebody that whatever she's doing, she's going to do it 100%. She doesn't know any other way to do it. And if she's not doing it 100%, she's probably going to do something else because that's just the only way she goes. Maybe Jane Marriott's kind of like that. or I, She is a crazy person that way. Originally, she, she raced ponies as a kid, pony races. Her dad is a, was a jockey and, and worked at the track. And so she did pony races and then she got into eventing and then games. She traveled to England and Australia uh, with, uh, with Ryan, yep. with Ryan Strider doing games. They were on a team together. Doing polo cross, she got to the apex of at least the United States polo cross. I think that might be one of the reasons she's not as gung-ho about it too. I think people play polo cross for different reasons. Some people play because they're getting better and they're kind of addicted to playing at a little bit higher level each time. And, right. and every time you go out, you're like, oh man, you see what I did? And then when you plateau out, and lose your steam. Other people just play to goof off and have fun or play because their kids play. Well, Dory plays because she's competitive. When she gets kind of to the top and it plateaus out, I think a lot of the reason she's out there, she's not going to go and just piddle around. Even right. at the practice, if you're playing in your backyard, she's going to beat you up. She just doesn't know anything else. So I think whenever she didn't have that big, fast upward trend, it was easier to see other directions. And I think people get distracted by the negatives in polo cross or distracted that there are even negatives, whether it's cost or doing stuff with your horses or whatever, because you're so into it, it's easy to forget about that stuff. And then as soon as real life kind of happens, or as soon as that, whatever it is that's drawing you in, takes a backseat, maybe some burdens that polo cross puts on become a little bit heavier. Right. That's, I think, why she's not so driven now. And it hurts to play. We're old people now. <laughs> I mean, I feel like I took a break when she took a break in 2012. So there's just not a lot of competition and you do plateau. And it's not like the sport was growing. It grew in different places since then. In her new discipline where in her new job doing dressage and if i say this wrong let me know so she jumped into a bigger pool a much more competitive pool right and What's it's not one what? you can just practice she would be in the backyard when she'd exercise horses or do whatever and she'd exercise the horse the whole time you're supposed to not like me that does it half time and gets tired always have a racket in her hand bouncing if she messed up if she missed a goal the weekend before, she's going to throw goals every time she gets on a horse just because she's that that driven. Well, she can become a really good polo cross player fast that way, especially playing good competition. She played on Lone Star for a long time. With dressage, it's not the same. And she's on Lusitano horses training. The other trainer that's there is uh, from Portugal. The horses are from Portugal or from Mexico. Dressage, I don't think, is something that you can go out there and just beat yourself until you get it kind of a thing. And so she's still just as driven. But I think because the plateau is so far away and it's just such a gradual climb that no matter how good she gets, there's still way more that she can do. There's a long way to go. So I, I think that drive that she's always had will be fulfilled for a lot longer this time than maybe some of these other stuff that she would get really good at a little more quickly. There's an element of finesse to that. And also, right, the, the value of the cost of the horse. I mean, she's being fed these well-bred horses that she has to bring along, or it's a top horse that she has to get the most out of, right? So there's a lot of money involved, correct? Yeah. yeah. There is a lot of money. It's ridiculous. What a fancy polo cross horse, top-notch, A-grade, young, best horse you could think of. The yearlings aren't going for, you could, you could get a, a yearling is like $20,000, something crazy in that world. Uh, and the good ones are 100K plus easy. That's like a good deal kind of a thing on a 16 year old horse or something. I don't know. It's not my world. 
for sure. Definitely supportive. And it's great not having to have a horse trailer and a pasture, all the things that owning horses have. Somebody else owned the horse and pay the vet bills and you get to reap the benefits. Yeah, there's two types of riders in her world and some of them get that $200,000 horse from Europe because they don't know how to ride it properly, they mess it up. And then you've got riders like Dory that can take that horse, get the most out of it, show it off well. So is she working with amateurs or is she just showing off horses for other people? Right now, I think they have about, pretty much everything they have is their own. They have a couple horses that they'll train that are warm bloods, but everything else is going to be Lusitano. And they do everything from the ground up. They breed their AI and live. They've got their own on-hand full-time vet and farrier that they fly in from Portugal. I mean, it's a crazy situation. They have like 42-year-olds that mm. need to be done something with. Oh and they this many three-year-olds. Now they're all for sale at different levels. So some of those might be sold before they get trained. There are actually four trainers there now. They pulled two more out of Portugal, three Portuguese people in Dory. They may each have a handful of horses in work. One might be ready to show. One might be a couple three-year-olds. They break horses by lunging them with a rider on it. Mm. And so there's some horses in that stage. Then they're doing the breeding and the just managing. Of, they have three properties around our house in Houston, the broodmare facility, the young horse facility, and the training facility. Done, check it out. It it's a pretty cool place. Is she the one riding them when they're, or is she when you say we're too old for this type of thing? Like that's I'm too old to do the first backing, but is she doing that kind of stuff? Oh yeah, no, she's she's riding them and doing all that. Now the horses don't give them trouble whenever they break the horses as much as you'd think because they're on a lunge line. They've been worked for probably six months before they get on them, kind of a thing. So oh, okay. I don't think they have the same kind. Let's go get the horse out in the pasture and see what it does, yeah. breaking style. And I don't think she's ever fallen off at work, and we've been there four years now. I don't know if she's had any almost, you know, bucks or anything. And when talking about being old, every once in a while we get to play polo cross, and it's so fun. And we are miserable the next day. We are not <laughs> in shape. Even her, she's rock solid, you know, all their dressage oh, yeah. core. But the muscles that you use in polo cross, we really need to build up again before we start getting into it again. Now that I'm not chief umpire anymore, yes. Yes. We'll get into that. We'll get into that. Um, so tell me what it's like now with Luke. Is that going to bring you more into polo cross now? He's of the age, right, that he could start trotting around and playing. He, right? A long time ago, when he was about three years old, he played his first tournament at Waldemar. Maybe he wasn't even three. He still has a medal he hangs up in his room. He thinks <laughs> it's pretty cool. I think Dory led the horse around, and I reached around the back of him to hold the back of his racket. And so he could do what he needed. But it was definitely a two people on the ground situation. <laughs> and we had a little pony that we gave to a facility that does handicapped kids and yeah. they love her. If he's interested, we're into it. Maybe something that brings us back. We're kind of far enough away that going to the weekly practices and the social events and stuff is a lot less often than we normally would. Not something... I think on his radar right this second. I think at some point he'll have his own horse and it'll stay at Dory's place. Maybe it'll get us into it back again. I, I love the people. I love I, I love going to polo cross, not necessarily for the polo cross, but as a spectator. I, I love to play. That family environment that I grew up in since I was a little kid, all these people like you, I might not have seen you for, I think I saw you at the board meeting a year and a half ago when I saw you. 
We grew up together. Everybody, you can see somebody years after you saw them last and be best friends with them. I don't think I'll ever lose that. I think I'll always be very, very interested to be in at least a spectator for all the polo cross that I can and playing whenever I get a chance, if I can find a horse and not hurt myself. What are you thinking about doing when, like, let's say October hits, I mean, polo cross kind of ends. What do you see yourself doing with polo cross? Anything at all? Because I know you obviously you're not the chief umpire anymore. Do you see yourself getting involved in a, a certain way? So the new chief umpire, I think, is had kind of a slow season with COVID and with the season not really happening. So I don't know that there's been a whole lot of activity when it comes to chief umpire's roles, whether it's dealing with disputes or managing tournaments or nationals, any of these things that aren't happening this year. I would like to be a part of the transition that I think is still kind of happening since he hadn't really got a chance to run with it yet. I feel like after being chief umpire, it was irresponsible for me to leave without it being an okay transition. Like it was really important for me that that was good. So I'll probably be a tournament umpire as often as I can on those spring tournaments or in normal or something in October. Sometimes I'm flying the helicopter in the area and I'll take off for the weekend and land the helicopter at the field and stay in a stall. I think I did that three different tournaments last year, but I'll try, I, I'll try to do what I can. I might, I might go do clinics. Uh, there's people in Minnesota that even in the wintertime want to find something to do with their horses. I might go do an umpire clinic up there in the springtime when it's cool down in Texas. We have a lot more going on. So just going out to practice would be fun for me. So let's get into the umpiring. Well, let's talk about how you got involved with the umpiring program a few years ago when you were the chief umpire and then some of those challenges that you had. This is the, the fun part. <laughs> I remember as a kid, my dad was always really into rules. He was a rules fanatic and he was very literal about all the rules. He was really detective-like about them. He, Fundamentalists, be, yeah. Yeah, I remember after the tournaments, we'd go to Colorado or somewhere. He and a lot of the old school guys, Dave Furman would always be in the conversation. They would always have these, what looked like arguments, but they were really very educated discussions about rules and how to umpire and implementation of current rules or how they should change. I remember, you only remember what you think you remember, might not be truth. But at the time, I remember a chief umpire being real active, going out and being visible. Britt Loveless, is, I can name him. Adam yeah. Redman is the one that's like really hitting hard at least in the stage whenever I was like teenager and being real involved. I remember them getting a lot of the people I really respected together and talking about serious things, not really being a backseat chief umpire, but really trying to go forward with things. Over time, we had problems with chief umpires with people wanting to do them. In fact, you were part of that. At one point, I think when Amy Keith left as chief umpire, we didn't have anybody to fill the role. And so I think Robbie Shuttles picked, either you or Robbie Shuttles picked up the slack and just said, okay, put my name on the list. And I think you you might have done it the following year. I did a temporary, yeah. Yeah, temporary things, filling in the gaps, but it wasn't somebody really taking the initiative. And with this period of time, people had kind of taken a backseat in polo cross. People have, had come and go within polo cross. I think we had Greg Russell after that, maybe. I saw, and I might be imagining it, but I saw the chief umpire position not being fulfilled. I thought there were a lot of roles that the chief, like we had a rule book that was 10 years old. It hadn't been updated forever, would seem like. And we knew that there were rules that we don't follow in the rule book because that's just that, not how we do it, but the rule book would never be edited. And so it would drive me crazy that there's this position or there would be discrepancies on how they would certify umpires and they would roll the certifications and change it up and or tournaments would happen and they would go against some of the rules. 
we would be really upset that no, this is how it goes. You can't just go change the rules. You can't just play any horse you want because you decided this is a sanctioned tournament. I was kind of vocal with my complaining about that. And I'm under the philosophy that if you're willing to complain about somebody doing their job, then you're not allowed to turn down the position if it's available to you. I, I don't think you're ethically allowed to bitch about something if you're not willing to do what you're telling that other person. Eventually, I worked my way into the chief umpire role with the idea that we were going to completely rewrite the rule book, reorganize the rule book, change the certification process, have all these forward thinking things, actually have a presence of a chief umpire and a tournament umpire. So when I started doing that, the big changes were the rule book. And I think the rule book was a really positive thing. The first year we were going around just making sure everyone was aware of the rules. And the idea with the rule book was just to make the rules fit the way we currently played. So at least now we're playing by this book, by an interpretation of the book, but we don't really go by the book because it's old news. And then I implemented, which I thought used to be there all the time. And I may be wrong because I was a kid, but this tournament umpire position. And I worked out in my head that the chief umpire doesn't have to be... So, so everything that I did was with the understanding that the chief umpire isn't some dictator that knows all. And then when he leaves, you're screwed again. It's going right. to be some fluid thing that can change over time and not have problems. So tournament umpires took a big role. They go to the tournament, they bring feedback like the new rules and give a little clinic at the beginning of the tournament, make sure everybody understands the rules. And then they sit on the sideline of every game and they can coach the umpires throughout the game on any of the changes or anything they're doing that's outside the standard of the APA. And then at the end of the weekend, they would report back to the chief umpire with any of the weird anomalies that weren't found in the rule book or how things went. And then the chief umpire would just take that question, hey, what happens when this situation occurs? We don't have a rule that says one way or another. And they would bring that to other people and discuss it and then feed that back to the next tournament umpire as the next tournament. And at the end of the year, we'd have a new rule book every year. And we've had a rule, new rule book every year since then. I think that's a good thing. If no one knows, in your new rule book, hopefully since I'm gone, it continues. If you look on the, on the margin, if there's a black line on the margin, on the edge, that's a new rule as of that year's rule book. So just a piece of trivia for you. They do that in aviation law rule books. Oh, okay. Let me ask you something real quick. I have to interject this. Didn't your dad rewrite the rule book a while ago? Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's crazy, by the way. Did uh, you ignore that or? No, so so whenever I was, no, I had people that I knew I wasn't going to let run anything, but their their input was really valuable like really valuable. David Furman and Paul Johnson are two of those people. They have this extensive knowledge and have been there long. Dave Furman lived at my house, taught me how to use a knife and fork the right way, like a New Zealander when I was a little kid. Uh, but anyways, my dad's rule book, he decided he was going to go through and all the rules that were like up to interpretation or really had major flaws, he was going to take them out and fix the game and rewrite the game in general. So once he figured out how to do it and he was happy with it, there are no swings, there's no lineups, there's no 10-yard throws. <laughs> you start by a flip of a coin and somebody gets the ball and they say play and you just run. If you, you can't swing at someone's racket, I think if you get close enough, you lose the ball, I think. Um, <laughs> but lineups, there's just no good way to implement where people should stand. And if you say they have to do it a certain way, because my dad is so analytical with the rules, if they just move an inch or do anything, like our current rules say, if you move for advantage, well, everything you do in the lineup is for advantage. Even right. if you stand up in your stirrups, you're doing that for advantage. And so 
he thought that there was just no right way to write that rule. So we'll just take it out. Um, same with the 10 yard throws. It, instead of a 10 yard throw, because there's this 10 yard throws, you know, you get first call at 10 yards, it has to go 10 yards, but if it goes past 10 yards, it's not your first call. So there's, because he didn't like that, you just get the ball and the umpire says play and you go run. But it's his like knowledge- it's like the English language, like tomato, tomato, you know, like the way that we spell words were very difficult. Yeah. So he was trying to simplify it. He wants a law that a lawyer can look at and not look at two different ways. Right. Uh, or an umpire, you can go tell the umpire to do this every single time in this every single situation and it be clear. And polo cross just has fluid moving parts, something like crossing or lineups that has so much activity going on. Sometimes this is an okay thing to do and other times this is an unsafe thing to do. He doesn't like that at all. It drives him crazy. It, bothers me a lot of times too. His input is really important. So I give a rule book to him and he would come back with all the problems with it or a specific rule. Even after I was chief umpire and the rule book had been in play for a while, we'd have some situation that would come up. What happens when someone's racket flies out of their hand and an opposing player while the racket's in the air hits it so that they, (laughs) so it goes farther. Uh, you know, and, and he would look at, at the rules in a certain way. And then someone like say David Furman, who has a different angle, but in a very specific way of thinking as well. And maybe Prissy or Robbie or some of the other people that have been around for a long time. And you can kind of average the good ideas and bad ideas together and get a, I think it's very healthy to include all of those different parts of the conversation, when, especially with something like rules. You yeah. even created a, uh, an umpire Facebook group. Things could be discussed. I got in on that a little bit late. You had that probably active for a little while, didn't you? I didn't want to be the one making the call. I didn't want anybody mad at me for anything. And I didn't think I was the most expert of anybody around. I thought I was probably on par with a lot of people and people were better than me. The certified umpire level umpires were in a Facebook group. And when something would come up, like we think studs on horseshoes should be illegal because there's a danger factor in this situation. I would forward that on to the group and say, hey, what do you think about this? And I wouldn't give any of my own perspective. I would let people rant about their different thoughts and they would kind of come to a consensus. Now I would still have like the veto, the veto vote mm-hmm. and I would be able to pick and choose the ones that sound the least crazy. It was a good way for me to be sure of anything that I presented back into the APA and, and know that, well, for one, anybody that was going to criticize me was probably in that group. So I get them <laughs> off the list already. And I can blame it on other people. And not only that is whenever I do pass it on to someone else like Chris, you could have somebody that's any level of a chief umpire. They don't have to be that top, top level as much. They could be a mediocre umpire even. They just need to manage this group of experts, collect their thoughts together and feed it back into the APA. And I thought that was a really healthy way to design the umpire program. Now I had a lot of issues later on with umpiring and the program, very frustrating issues. Tell Uh, us about those, yeah. I was going to fix it and I was smart and I could, I could fix it. And I had a lot of complaints about people redoing the certification program and having all these things that I didn't appreciate. I found out that my dad was right. There are certain rules that you cannot write any sentence that describes all the scenarios for say crossing or for certain things. There has to be this gray area. Gray areas as a chief umpire and a rule writer is, is really, really hard 
for me to stomach. Right. Something like lineups. Even the same scenario in a C-grade game versus an A-grade game, you're going to call it different. Somebody might be jostling around in a certain way that's a huge advantage in A-game. Those C-graders, that little bit of movement was no advantage at all. Same with crossing or how close you let the players get. You know, crazy C-grade players that are very fast but don't have good field awareness, you might be calling crossing a certain way, whereas World Cup, you might let a lot of those closer calls go because those people have the field awareness to close some of those gaps. Then whenever there is a really big one with the World Cup, you're going to make a stand and maybe throw somebody off the field. And Whereas in that C-grade game, you're going to try and teach while you're umpiring, and you might give a free goal, or you might change the ball to the other team in one scenario, where in that upper level, you might let it go altogether, or you might punish it really strongly. It, that bothered me a lot. I, I wanted to be able to write down, it, it's really hard to train umpires to do something differently, depending on the scenario. That's a really hard thing to do. Also, certification would come up. The APA would always want certification. We need to have a list of certified umpires. We need to have a way for them to become this high-level umpire and make more of them. And there's... Yeah, that included me. So I'll I'll take... Yeah, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to write... I made a website, uh, one of these class... I'm sure they're making tons of money now. uh, These online class quiz type things. And I made a a test. It was going to have a test for a couple different levels. It would have maybe some lessons in there also, different rules, different scenarios. And I made the test and kind of tried it out. And immediately I realized that this has no clue. This doesn't give you any idea of how this person umpires. It gives you a little bit of an idea of these particular rules and scenarios. But for them to be a certified umpire because of this test just was irrational to me. And for me to have a certified umpire, so the the tournament umpires were huge in my whole philosophy. They were the ones that were the face of the APA. They were the ones coaching all the umpires in the APA, trying to hold the standards and teach new standards. And so to be a tournament umpire, which had to be a chief, I mean, a, a certified umpire, you had to be really top notch. And I had really high criteria for them. At the time, I had They had to be able to umpire and control the game at any level, including international. They had to be able to run a tournament. They had to have an in-depth knowledge of the rules. They had to be current within the last two years. So all the current events that were going on, you know, the rule changes or what was happening, they needed to be aware of. And I may have had, oh, and they had to pass an oral exam, which is me giving them a scenario that does not have a right answer that someone, while I was tournament umpire, came up to me and I had to deal with it. And just to see how they would handle it. Personality comes into play too. You might have somebody that's good with kids or can run a tournament or whatever, but doesn't ha- has a perspective uh, that people don't give respect to. And so they right. cannot umpire. They bite their tongue when they're supposed to make a call. Yes. Or when they're supposed to make a decision, they don't. Yes. And so yeah. they the, the high-level games, they fall apart. Uh, you have other people that are awesome umpires that aren't responsible enough to run a tournament. They're not going to show up on Sunday morning and that's important. Or you have other people that are really good and they've been certified umpires for years and years, but they haven't been current. They haven't been to a polo cross tournament since all our new rule changes and everything. So we can't have them go out and be our umpire instructors. So our pool was very limited. I would say maybe eight people. And one of the problems with that is a lot of those people were in Lone Star. So it looked bad. You had like Ryan Strider and Prissy. My dad was never a certified umpire. I couldn't, I couldn't allow him to be a certified umpire because he didn't. <laughs> That's because 
criteria. Of, that's because of Susan. <laughs> no, it's because he won't umpire the way that we're um, trying to have people umpire. Although he's high, high up on my you know right. best umpire list, I couldn't have him as a certified umpire or as a tournament umpire because he'd go make some weird stuff happen to teach people what they were doing wrong. Yeah, he was, yeah, he was a tournament umpire a few years ago. Eight, eight years ago or something. And he had me, no, it was 2012. And he was trying to enforce the lineup rule that you cannot jump the line, jump the T. Right. And I was enforcing it as an umpire and it was upsetting a lot of players and they couldn't, they didn't know how to handle it. They were just like, instead of just complying, that was a case where Paul was justified. You know, people were jumping the line and he was, he just was trying to get control of it. And I thought he did a good job. I think that's a good example of the personality part. So I think a big part of this is there's different kind of factions within Polo Cross. These people get along with these people and get along with those people. And there's some people that don't really get along with other people and you can kind of anticipate heated games and everything. Well, there's some tournament umpires that if they were to go to a certain area, they may be too strict. And that area is new and fluid and they don't care about stuff and they need somebody that's a little bit more fluid, that's a a little bit more forgiving. And then there's some other tournaments that if you don't have that upright, strict person there, things are going to fall apart. You're going to have people very upset. That was one of the struggles too. So this brings me something. Whenever I did that oral exam thing, I would give them that situation that would happen. I was the tournament umpire at Pennsylvania and you were one of my examples that I would give to these people. I don't know if you remember the tournament. Mm. You were on a horse in a grade that reared constantly and you were Yeah. Starts with an S. Continue. So you were not effective. You couldn't get in the lineup. You couldn't do anything. You could barely stay on the field. Uh, The problem was, is your horse wasn't dangerous. Your horse was kind of half rearing enough to where you couldn't do anything, but you weren't knocking people off their horses. And we would warn you, hey, as soon as you get close to somebody, we're going to throw you off. And I think you even told me, oh, do it right now. Tell me what I have to do to this dangerous (laughs) enough. I'll do it right now. So the question that I have for the people is this person has this rearing horse that's been ineffective in an A-grade game for two full games. Halfway through that second game or at the end of that second game, you finally decide that this horse is dangerous. What horse can you put that player on that is worse? Mm. You're not allowed to substitute a horse. They are of a higher caliber and you shouldn't be gaining advantage by getting a replacement horse for a horse that has a vice. And I think at the time I would have probably made you play on a horse. In uh, 98 at Coffs Harbor, Robbie had a horse that only went backwards. So that, that might be the same <laughs> level. Not dangerous, but not fun. But, but yeah. now after that, you rode your pregnant gray horse for the rest of the weekend, whatever <laughs> that was. Angelita or someone? Or I don't know. Who was the, well, it was your horse. One of the... Hold on. There's Erica. There's Daniel. Hi. Pleasure to meet you. Oh, she I met you before, actually. At the wedding, right? At the wedding, yeah. yeah. Yeah, she can't hear you, but she's taking a riding lesson later today. From you? Found, not from me. Heck no. <laughs> yeah, so so I found a non-horse person, which is the best thing I've ever done. Uh, <laughs> so we digress, but yeah. So what do you do in that situation? What do you do when we ended up putting you on this pregnant horse? Now you're in the lineups, and you're winning games now, and the other teams are frustrated. And so these are the kind of scenarios that the tournament umpire is presented with, and mm-hmm. I'll ask them a scenario like there's no right answer you got to make the tournament happen and what's best for the game of polo cross you try to follow the rules as best as you can and still make it the right decision maybe have to bend one which is another thing i don't like doing so yeah you're 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 famous for uh, <laughs> the, the one question oral exam you brought up you were brought up occasionally you should ask whether or not i cried after that game and i think i did <laughs>
Your dad does statistics while he's keeping score and running a scoreboard. Has he ever thought about taking the rule book, not his idea of what the rules are, but your rule book and say, I'm going to do stats on the umpire? Yes, he did that already. And he was criticized for it, actually. Where um, are the numbers? I want to so see So he made videos. He would video a game. And then after a game, he would critique the video and give people points off for everything they missed. And you would get you know, a 60%. It meant you called 60% of the things that you should have called. Now he's going to have a little bit of a bias angle because yeah, of his but, position on a perch. And he's yeah. also going to have a biased personality because of how he likes to interpret some rules. He might think things should be- 40% error or like 20%. I, yeah, no, he was pretty hard on people and he would, you know, he, the way that he coaches and the way that I think I coach sometimes in a playful way can sound bad. Oh, you know, dry. somebody it's does something you're like, thing. right. Like, Oh, that was awful. <laughs> and you're laughing the whole time. But I think some people that were criticized as a learning experience, not for them, but for everybody else, weren't appreciative of all that criticism. It also happened that I talked to him about it recently, actually, I don't know when he said that he thought about doing that for everything. And then they, you would rate the umpires for all the things they did that throughout the weekend. The problem is you can't do it real time. That's really hard to do. And to do it on a video, even if you don't post the video and edit it and do all that, just to watch each one of those videos mm. would take them a week through, you know, and mm. stop and slow down and make a tally mark and do all that. And so it really wasn't practical. It wasn't a, a good way to do it. I think of players, like you think of that outfielder in baseball, right? That little kid, they're throwing their glove up, they're picking their nose, whatever. We have a lot of umpires that are like that. They're there just to throw the ball in. They are not positioning themselves. You know, you're playing and they're not calling anything. And I'd say that happens more than not. That's how you, at least I've felt. I ran into a problem whenever I was part of chief umpire was the rule book and the certification, but it also was training umpires, making the umpiring better. The tournament umpire being on the sidelines should notice when somebody's not doing something that they should calling something or being involved, blowing the whistle, and should interject. Now, I had tournament umpires that were really active in that role, like Prissy would be really, really active. And then other tournament umpires that when it was really important, they'd be there for that, but they weren't really coaching every play. Every time the umpire comes back without the ball in their hand saying, hey, great job on this, but you might try to get in front of the play if it's in this area next time or something. They would just be there here and there, whereas... The idea is for them to be coaching every time. Every time you go out and play as an umpire, you, it should be a coaching clinic for you for an hour. I ran into problems with, I did a couple coaching clinics or umpire clinics at the beginning, and it's really hard for people to sit down in a classroom environment and then go out and do it for real with just first try. So what I did is I, I bought these earplug things, these uh, microphones that go in your ear as a umpiring coach on the sideline, you can have direct communication with the people on the field. It could be just fun. And, and I would have a clinic where we'd have a play day after a classroom day. Every chukka, you're in someone's ear saying, move forward right here. You're looking for this. You need to be at an angle. You can see this. Okay. That was okay. But if they get too close, somebody that is not sure of the rules or somebody that's kind of insecure about the whistle or doesn't feel like they have the authority as a C grade player to call Braxton for his thing that he did, it turns 180 degrees. They are immediately this beautiful, wonderful remote control umpire. 100% of the time I've had positive results. People have come off and said, that was wonderful. Whether it's somebody, even the really strong umpires, like in an A grade final, you're not going to put some learning umpire there, but to have somebody in their ear and they can talk back if they want to, to be able to clarify something or for you to back them up in their ear, they can blow with authority and know that you're backing them up. 
or if they call something, they don't know if that person called it or if the tournament umpire on the sideline actually called it. It takes a little bit of the heat away from the umpires, which in turn, I think it, it lessens the back talk. It lessens the complaining that the umpires get direct from the players. It kind of has this third party that can mediate some of that. And it's been really helpful, really, really helpful. That that headphone thing, I hope, continues. The APA, is, our job is to put on these mega clinics that we're going to bring back where we have people being coached all weekend by certified coaches. If we can get the umpire program involved, there'll be plenty of games going on where umpires can do things like this, use that technology do video review. When they're not under the pressure of a tournament, they can use those opportunities for that. I hope we do things like that. There's going to be a mega clinic, Grand Bay, November 6th. I don't know if you can be involved with that at all. Yeah. There would be a ton of value in that and you could help Chris out. I don't know if he's going to, if he would be able to make that, but get the umpiring stuff going there. I want to talk about the umpire tax. I had a couple of years where I was involved with Polo and they have an LLC. All those umpires are professionals. They're very neutral in many ways. Now, obviously there's some subjectivity they know players they see the same players over time so they're not perfect by any means but they are held to a pretty high standard and they have a boss pretty serious so I saw the value uh, in that and obviously the APA doesn't have the money we don't have clothing that people want to buy for for polo cross we don't have all the money necessarily for that but you had thought of an idea called the umpire attack which is a way to help pay umpires and treat them as if they're professionals. So talk about that. Problem that we had at the time, Wade Liner and I were talking, he was the president at the time, that people weren't motivated to umpire, you know, to get somebody even to show up, you're begging them to come out. And the better an umpire that you are, the more you have to umpire and the harder the games are that you have to umpire. So these people that were worthless umpires would get by all weekend playing their four games and having a beer and having a great time. And these really strong umpires would have to umpire at least one game a day. And then when stuff hit the fan, they would probably be asked again, you know, and it wasn't fair for them. And there really wasn't in any incentive to umpire in, in any way to show our appreciation to these umpires. Uh, one idea was paid umpires. And we worked out with a two field tournament. It was going to cost each player more than the tournament fee in cost just to get them there, not to pay them for their for their time, but just to get them there. They'd umpire three games and have two games off. Three games be terrible. You wouldn't get anybody to do it anyway, because all the players are playing at the tournament. You know, all the all the people you'd want to umpire all weekend. One of the solutions is I would add a sixteen dollar tax per player per tournament. That's for the whole weekend. You pay an extra sixteen bucks. What you're doing is you're paying four dollars per game that you're gonna play. That turns into a pretty decent pot of money for that game, about $50 a game after everybody that has paid is playing. At the end of the game, you get a $20 bill. Right off the bat, it's understood you should umpire one game a weekend. That's kind of your normal responsibility. And so that $16 tax will actually be a $4 discount on your entry fee because you'll get $16 in. You just umpire one time, you get $4 back. The people that don't umpire at all, well, at least you're paying the people that we should appreciate. You, you deserve to give them something. And then these other people that would umpire a whole bunch might get a little more. And there's a little extra buffer money that we didn't get into the specifics, but if you were a certain level player or uh, like a, if you were a certified umpire, you might get paid more. Or if you were training someone while you were there, you might get paid more. There's, there's $25 available potentially each game instead of 20 or whatever. It also opened up the idea that you might have some college kid that's not necessarily legging their horse up, but still willing to be in there. I think Andrew Deemer did this once for us, umpired the whole weekend and they would come down potentially drive their car down and umpire as many games as they can through the weekend. Maybe make a bunch of money, 500 bucks, or I don't know how much the weekend would pay you. Make as much as you want 
and that would kind of pay for their weekend and they'd be able to be involved. Not just anybody could do it. Anybody that umpires gets the dollars no matter what, but the tournament umpire would still have to fit the umpires into the right places. If you wanted to umpire and you were no good, you don't have to become a halfway decent umpire mm-hmm. to get to that point. Or if you wanted to umpire every game, well, there might be not be some games that you're qualified for. You still have that oversight from the tournament umpire, but I thought it was a wonderful thing and I thought it was brilliant. I was so proud of it. And I presented it to the APA and it had some flaws, you know, who's going to hold the stack of $20 bills and how does that work? And then we could work that out later, I thought. Yeah. But but it just didn't get any traction in the APA and and just never happened. Maybe it'll still happen at some point. But I I thought it was a really good way to show the appreciation to the umpires and give a little bit back. Yeah, yeah, the idea of bringing players from outside that weren't necessarily playing that could umpire more games is such a phenomenal idea i had a gas price analogy okay you look at gas prices in the u.s all of a sudden they'll go up like 20 30 cents right now they're pretty low if you look at the trajectory over time the price as a percentage has was would be pretty steady but for some reason the prices were so low and then they come up in spikes so everyone has this huge crazy reaction oh my god it costs so much for gas well in the APA we hadn't changed our sanctioning fees in year eight or ten years they were actually afraid to do that because they thought eight extra dollars or whatever five extra dollars for a player was such a big deal that you know everyone would riot everyone would quit the apa we cower to such crazy ideas that four dollars is going to kill someone let alone them driving eight hours to a tournament with a family of three it's such a minimal amount of money and so to be able to add this to get better umpiring because I say that good coaching gets people into the sport, but bad umpiring gets them out of it. That definitely happened with Orange County Polo Cross. They were playing Polo Cross. They were getting beat up. They switched to Polo and they never went back just because Polo was had professional umpires. They weren't getting beat up as much and right. all that. I think it's worth it. And I, I think that's still, it's something and it, it should be, we should do it for sure. Well, we, and it's not, you're talking about the sanctioning fees, complaining about sanctioning fees going up a certain amount. This isn't, nobody's allowed to whine about this. It's, it's against the rules to whine about this because if you're whining about a $4 discount, you shouldn't be whining. And if you're whining that you have to pay $4 per game for the umpire and you don't umpire, well, you don't get to whine. So really anybody that whines about this is obviously never umpiring that weekend. Everybody that should, you know, everybody that's doing their service is always going to be a discount and sometimes a significant discount if they don't mind umpiring two or three games. You can be playing with no entry fee at all because you've umpired a couple games a day. You know, that's 80 bucks. That's what the entry fee is a lot of these tournaments. Well, used to be. If they don't pay, they should get their own field with no umpiring and see how that goes. Right. See how much they like that. I think there's something to be said for bringing back the certified shirts holding them up you know saying hey these are our certified umpires but i know you only had a list of eight so what do you call everyone else that umpires that was another one of my really 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 difficult things and the thing that made it most difficult is it changed like every year i would have some correction and oh now i've got the real answer and i'd present it and everybody thought i was so smart and it was such a great idea and we'd try it out and of course there'd be some flaw that next year that was brought up in 
that process and I'd have to reevaluate and change it again. That's got to be frustrating for the players and the umpires. Definitely frustrating for me because to try and say, oh, sorry, I was wrong. Now it's right. Like three or four years in a row, it's hard to stomach. You know, you're probably not ever going to get it right. The way that I originally had it was you had certified umpires were people that were able to do all those things, those list of everything, the experts of the experts kind of a thing. And then you had associate umpires. And those are just people that are above 18 and can control the game at some level. They can control an E-grade game or a C-grade game or something. Everyone else is not an associate umpire. You're just, you're nothing. Associate umpires, all they had to do is be above 18 and somebody had to see them umpire at some point. You didn't have a test. You might not even know that you're on the list. Originally, I had made it to where every field was going to have at least one associate umpire. You didn't have some low-level game, some E-grade game that had two 12-year-old kids out there umpiring. It's going to have one of your umpires be an adult that has been able to be seen, to be able to control a game at some level, right? That was that was the goal of all the... And then the person that's running all of the umpires is that master of masters and is on the sidelines, hopefully on the game. I thought that was a good way to do it. Well, I found out that there's not that many of these people that I think are these master levels. I was running out of people, especially at a big tournament where those people are playing polo cross that weekend. I thought, well, there's other people that could be in this role and run the tournament and coach people, but might not be able to do some of the other things. Maybe they can't umpire at that highest level but they could organize a weekend. I think the most recent way I organized it was I had a list of these certified umpires, which are the badasses. And then I had a list of tournament umpires. And those are people that I felt comfortable putting in the tournament umpire position. They could go to a tournament and run a tournament and be able to manage things. If they had a question, I was always available during tournament days. They would call me, say, hey, this weird thing happened. What do you think we should do? So I had the tournament umpire and then I had the associate level umpires. There was conversation at different times that we should have this like umpire ranking system so that people can be in, they could be excited about, ooh, I just got moved up a level in my umpiring. I'm a C3 now or whatever. Other people thought that you should umpire, your ranking should be at the level at which you play or at the level that you umpire, depending on who you are. So an A player should be able to umpire A grade. I don't think that is the case. I think really strong umpires that need to be in some of the lower levels or might, you can put a really strong umpire with a mediocre umpire in a certain game and the game can go well. So I never did find a really good final answer for the right way to organize everything. As of now, I have these badass certified umpires that should be able to do everything, including coach, run a tournament, umpire international, whatever. And then I've got this second tier of people that I feel like can run a tournament and represent the APA. And then the associate umpires still, the people of age that have umpired before. Sounds like you have a level one, two, and three, as much as you would hate to use that terminology. Well, um, yeah, you can call it what you want. So yeah. say that I have those categories. As of now, I'm picking those people. I'm saying, I feel like you could handle a tournament. It's not, you've fulfilled this paper written test to a certain standard and you've done these many undergraduate class things and participated in these things and now you're ready. It's like a personality thing. It's like, okay, I know that at least in these certain tournaments, I can use these people, they're tournament umpires. I don't like the way that's organized and people on the outside, especially people that want to be in a place that they're not, somebody that thinks they should be at a certain place, they disagree with whatever my perspective is, that puts them 
gym, what are they supposed to do? So I would tell them the criteria that they up to standard on, but it wasn't a clear roadmap to success that you could take. Like if you were taking a course in college, you can't right. go through these steps to get there. And I did have ways for people to get there, but it, it wasn't clean cut, written down, very difficult to do. So yeah, that's one of the frustrations I had that I never was able to cross off my bucket list as a chief umpire. Well, to me, it sounds like a mentoring program where there are wise people and they're helping identify, they're helping guide someone that's that's not at that level. You have a very minimal criteria to get involved as an associate. The guts are there. What I did with the certified coach program, stole it from the U.S. Polo Association. They There are basic things like background check, uh, concussion training, just basic stuff. And you had to fill out an application just show some sort of commitment. And I think that's more of a liability thing. You have to do very basic things. If you were recommended, I could have a conversation with you. I could, it's sort of the verbal test. I would walk through how would they handle certain things. And we did have some of that written down. That's a very minimal level. So getting that level, the associate seems to be very easy, but it's taking it from that level to level two, how to put that down on paper. And having someone that has all those skills and is really good, A-grade player, knows all the rules, but is timid. And maybe one example, doesn't blow the whistle like they should and kind of spectates as an umpire or even worse, somebody that when they blow the whistle and they get feedback from the players, they cower or they're influenced by the players because they have that weak personality. On paper, that person is going to fulfill all of the guidelines needed to be in that position. But you need that personal touch to really do the final check to say, okay, yeah, on paper, they look like this, but they cannot be in this situation and manage it well. And so the criteria that I had were judgmental and or I was judging, can you handle a game at this level? And it wasn't a, I've done it before. It's a, does the chief umpire think you can, which causes conflict potentially. I definitely want to be in the conversation whenever any changes happen or as things flow, because I feel like I've done it wrong a lot of different times. And right. when they try and do it wrong, the same way I did it wrong. I'll tell them why that was wrong. And maybe I'll be in the conversation with the right way. I'd like to be. The reason I got out of chief umpire position is I wasn't motivated anymore. I didn't, I was running into brick walls. And the reason I got into it initially was these jobs weren't being done. I thought I wasn't allowed to complain unless I was willing to put myself there. Four or five years later, I don't need to complain anymore. I get it. I was complaining that Greg Russell was changing the certification process and throwing out old certifications. and I was certified already. What do you mean I got to do this and this? And then he'd change it again. And five years later, I'm doing the same crap. And boy, that's frustrating as a person that thinks you know how to do things right. Whenever I lost my passion for it, for the moving forward thing, I felt like it was unfair for me to be in that position. And I'm happy to be involved, but I really think that the APA deserves to have somebody that's really passionate about it. And the way that it's organized now, you don't have to be an expert. You don't have to be this one of those six or eight people that I think are in the top notch. You have to be able to manage the group of those six or eight people and whoever else right. comes along. And so almost anybody can do it. And I think it'd be really healthy for us to have more than one person come in and do it and continue the process and show that it can continue without falling apart. I mean, let me give you a ton of credit because as frustrated as you are that you feel like you did all this, you didn't really fit the bill, whatever the APA was asking for. I feel like you've already, you've done it. You've created a structure. You've created organizational chart of what the umpiring program looks like. As far as ratings go in uh, the Polo Association, the local club will give that player their first rating. And then mm. there's a regional person. It's a more fancy name than what 
what we would ever have. They're the person that will decide on your next rating. And so it goes to the region. So that sounds like that regional umpire that we have because we have three zones. So if you have a good, solid regional umpire, they can overlook that zone's umpires and be at those tournaments and mentor and all that. And the tournament umpires that are watching each game could actually put a tally mark. Yeah, I think that person deserves whatever number they came in on. Or, hey, I think that person's actually doing a little better than what it says here on this paper. And they could probably give feedback throughout. Yeah, we'll talk about this in detail. I think that is definitely a good way to take the chief umpire's perspective out of it. I like the way that goes. I think Australia does that too. They might even do that for their ratings, the low-level ratings within their clubs anyway too. Think about Ryan Strider. He comes to Bay Area and he's the tournament umpire. He's not playing and he's sitting there. So I think of someone like him that's just that tournament umpire observing yep. he could be making notes about umpires yeah, right um and grading them in some way yeah it'd be really yeah. easy to put that in that one little whatever number that they were previously you just maybe that number should be changed suggestion and that stuff will be fed back in and you get a couple positive suggestions in a row kind of a thing maybe you move up i like that I wish I thought of it. <laughs> no, you did think of it. You did think of it. It just didn't all come together. And I think that it, it requires great communication from that group of zone umpires. Yeah. And I, I don't think everyone necessarily fits that bill. Some are harder to get a hold of. Some aren't as passionate. But if you can really find three solid people that are really passionate, which is hard to find because people are passionate about playing and things like that. Well, yeah, or you can just you can task your, your tournament umpires to do it. In fact... So after the first couple of years of putting this tournament umpire in, there were complaints from especially the lower level fields that, hey, we have two or three fields in this tournament and we only have one tournament umpire. So yes, we love this third umpire on the field that can fix problems and blow the whistle if something weird's happening and do all this, but we don't get that attention over on the second field a lot of times. And so we started having tournament umpire referee position. We changed the rule book again, made a referee a real person. And the tournament umpire will either appoint someone to that second field or there'll be an actual flown in second tournament umpire. So there's somebody there at every field. So there should be someone at every field anyway that could easily watch what the umpire's doing. That's what they're doing anyway. So yeah. It's like a, I like like it. a threshold for number of players. It requires that second referee or something like that. If the, if the field, if the tournament has two fields, they should have a second referee either sent to them by the APA or the tournament umpire will appoint, like say you, you're not playing at three o'clock. Hey man, do you mind sitting on the sideline blowing a whistle every once in a while or coaching? And, and we made it to where that third person is, is all the time there. There's always supposed to be a third person on the sidelines. And I right. really like that. I think that's the way it should always be. I want to lighten it up a little bit. And I want to, I want to hear you what your pet peeves are when you're watching people play or umpire, what they don't call. But I have a few things in my mind that I want to air my grievances. Like in the line out, this is, oh my God, 12, 14 years. I don't know, a long time ago. Playing against Derek Rummel and we're threes and he's holding my racket down in the line out. Your dad would put his whole arm and elbow over my rain arm and acting like nothing was wrong. Terrible people. <laughs> no, they're great. But he, he, <laughs> no one was calling it. He was just trying to get an advantage. That that sort of stuff. Or reaching across the one and and hitting the racket and catching the ball and the umpiring not yep. calling that, the three doing that. And I found myself wanting to complain. But if I complained as a top-level player, I was seen as a whiner. And because everyone knows each other, everyone so well. I remember yep. one time so, I, was trying to, I was trying to complain to Amy Keith and she's like, stop whining Ryan no so say you find yourself in that situation I'm Ryan and I don't want to be whiner Ryan and but I've got all of my friends over here that I have to go tattle on and so now your chuck is over right 
you just lost that chucka because Derek was cheating and my dad was laying in your lap. You can go to the turnpire on the sideline while you're not playing and say, hey man, this is what's going on. I just wanted to make you aware of it. You don't want to argue with them. You just want to make sure that, because there's a lot of stuff that we don't see. That tournament umpire, so whenever I coach umpires, the person throwing the ball in really has limited ability to see what's going on. They're throwing, that's stressful enough, if you're me especially, and there's so much action going on in the front that the twos and threes are really hard to see anything. I make it a point that the second umpire, the tail end umpire, is really looking hard and not just sitting there twiddling their thumbs, going to get the ball or whatever. In fact, the umpire hadn't brought the ball back. You need to wait to throw the ball in. So you have those eyes on the backside. So after your chukka that you whined about that nobody saw because you just came up and chatted with your friend Daniel on the sidelines, I would go to the umpires and I walk out there every time the chukka is over anyway. And I would tell people to always do that to just chat with your umpires because then it looks like that's all you're doing. Then when something weird happens, it looks like you're just going out to the chat because that's what you do. You bring them a water. And in that one, I would say, hey, Whining Ryan says that Wyman he is getting... for Wyman <laughs> Like a dog. He is getting taken advantage of by those Johnson boys. <laughs> it's hard to see it because they're sneaky. And he was hoping that maybe you can keep an eye on that. And I think that's a really positive way that it comes in. It's not yeah. confrontational. And that other umpire isn't feeling like you're telling them they did it wrong and you're that's why you're losing. You know, it's a really healthy way to interject some feedback to the umpires and for the umpires to correct or to notice something that they hadn't seen in the past. That sideline umpire also might catch it beforehand. If, if the sideline umpire is paying attention enough, even before that first chuck is over, hopefully if you whine loud enough <laughs> when they do that, they might notice it and point it out to the people that haven't seen it on the field. I think there's healthy ways to get around that. It could work in the opposite direction where you're taking advantage of that umpire because you might be a top player and they might be an up and coming A grader and you're trying to influence them in some way but you're not going to influence that expert on the sideline that's the best of the best can handle any international game if the players on the field are being influenced by you talking back or something that can be corrected by the sideline guy too and i think the talk back has really corrected itself over time i think that has been the sideline umpire i think is a huge part of that but it used to be so awful almost embarrassingly awful I don't think that it's gone, but I think it is way, way better than, than it ever has been, or at least it has been in the recent. I want to talk about what happened last year at Lone Star, because you had a really good idea of how to get people together for a meeting. So talk about that. Huh. This was sort of your swan song. You wanted to have a meeting. Should you stay? Should you go? How did you get everyone together at that trailer? Oh, I think I offered some Bundy or, or offered alcohol. Yeah, what did I do? is a big bottle of Bundy. Yeah, I had a big bottle of Bundy and I said, everybody, because all these fancy umpires are interested in Bundy because of all their travels and it brings back our memories every every sip. And so, yeah, I would have people like Braxton and Robbie and uh, the people that needed to be in the conversation with how the umpire program should go and people that I respected their perspective on and anybody else that wanted to come. And so I, uh, I brought a bottle of Bundy and said, let's all drink this bottle of Bundy while I talk and you can tell me if I'm thinking crazy things or not. It was like an hourglass. I said, the meeting can't be over until this is finished. So we, we, we finished <laughs> it didn't that take thing. long. Yeah, no, it was a pretty short meeting. But I think I was giving them the idea that hey, I think I'm done. I'm going to take a step back. You can either have, I don't know who's going to be on the plate for what kind of umpire you might get after me. You might have somebody that's very well organized and really motivated, but might not be one of these 
top eight umpires and might not have that same respect. Or you might have one of these awesome badass umpires that's not motivated. Yeah, you respect them, but they don't do anything. And I would give them three or four different options and the pros and cons to them. And I got their feedback on what they would be missing out on if they got one thing versus another thing. And then I presented that feedback to the APA board when they were deciding what direction to go. I don't like to say anything that's my idea. I like to say other people's idea and pretend like it's mine. So that's, yeah, well, then you can blame someone if it's bad or you can take credit if it's good. But that's what I did is I, I presented kind of the brainstorm of what those really strong players and strong umpires had to say with the different candidates that would have been available during that changeover. If I had to use one word for your reign, I, th- I would say diplomacy because you were really bringing in a lot of people. Maybe that it was it was a wise council of the top umpires, but you were bringing a lot of people in, into the discussion. You were doing training videos. Those are not easy to do. Those take a lot of time. You were trying to use technology. I would notice whenever the APA board would have some problem, and it happens with any government organization or any any organizing group, if they want to try and make people act a certain way, they punish them for not acting that way. And maybe in certain cases, that's the right way to do things, but it's definitely 100% my philosophy and pull across this volunteer sport that you're trying to get, and umpiring, even more of a volunteer crappy thing to do. You don't say, if you don't umpire, you do this. Or if you don't join the APA, you're going to have to pay double. Or, you know, you don't try and punish. You try and make whatever it is that you're offering worthwhile. So I I try to uh, change people's perspective by making them want to change that way instead of forcing them to change that way or punishing them for not. Um, And I think that philosophy was really good. There were lots of different groups that kind of didn't click with each other. I feel like the way that we did things helped those groups come together. I think that's going to be one of the hard things for somebody that's a president or a chief umpire to do is to be able to appeal to all the different personalities without being a dictator of some sort. It's yeah. not a job that everyone's praying at night that they get. I mean, it's not, not that much fun. It, ca- it could be for somebody and you were reveling in it and, and you were creating that test. You were doing the things that you were good at. The rule book was probably your biggest accomplishment. I want you to feel good about it because you yeah. did a lot of things. It may not I'm proud of it. Yet. I wouldn't be proud of it if I stayed on and didn't hold it to this and, and didn't fulfill the, the standard that I thought others should do. You know, if I was to sit and take a back seat for another five years, do things in a way that I don't think someone should do it, you know, not be as involved as they should be, then it, that would not be a proud situation for me to be in. So as soon as I don't think I'm fulfilling the role that I think I should fill, mm-hmm. I'm going to try and make that happen without me in it or with me as a seat driver. We can go into this World Cups. I think some different weird things in polo cross. First World Cup that my wife played in. Now, I'm working a certain time of year. I cannot leave. We only have this certain window of stuff. I cannot leave for a week. That's It can't happen. So my wife goes to England to play a World Cup, and I can't go. And I find out they have no video. They have no way. They, they hardly have any phone service. So I didn't know what I was going to do. And there were so many people in my situation that also weren't participating. So Dory's mom went and she had a phone from the U.S. government that had unlimited international calls. What I said is here, you go on the sidelines of the game and you tell me what's happening over the phone. I'll get on my phone and I'll have my Facebook pulled up. And I made Facebook or I made World Cup 2011 updates Facebook page. And what I would do is I would make a post every time she said something. This person got the ball. This person missed a goal. This is the current score. This is the chucka. This is the winning score. People were into it. 
they would sit there and refresh on their Facebook every 10 seconds to follow this little highlight reel of Facebook posts of the games. It was surprisingly well-received. Yes. I think there were like 600 people that would follow this thing. People got complaining about... Well, when the United States played Zambia, that game was monitored. But when Zambia played against South Africa, it wasn't. What you doing? Updates? <laughs> Drag together. Well, I have a job and, you know, I'm sitting in a hotel in West Virginia trying to listen to an international call and type on my computer. And I can only do that periodically. I can't do it for every game for the whole World Cup. I enlisted several stand-ins for me. And I think Raul did it. There were a couple of other people. There were, there were a handful of people that I said, okay, I'm giving you the admin code. Dory's mom's going to to call you and tell you everything that's happening and you type it in. I'd love to go read some of those transcripts actually. Anyway, so that worked out okay. And it was like the first time the World Cup was really broadcast out real time. You could kind of kind of follow what was going on, kind of. Well, the next World Cup's going on, South Africa. My wife's in it. She's captain of the women's side. I can't be there. And I find out that I think they had planned on having some Facebook Live or some sort of feed or something. And now they don't have any of that. Maybe they didn't have it from the start. Uh, in fact, like rolling brownouts and blackouts in the area. So you might not even have power certain times of the day. <laughs> no elephants though, right? No. So I decided, okay, well, and I, I just Googled radio or podcast or something and I found uh, Mixler. It was just a random app. There were probably 30 of them I could have chosen from. I picked Mixler because it was first one, I guess. And I made Polo Cross Mixler, maybe is all it is, just called Polo Cross. It's a website. And I made the pass. Yeah. yeah, it's a it's like an app on the phone and it's also a website, but it's just live streaming. I would have different people at World Cup download the app, hold their phone up to the announcers, and we would be able to hear what was going on. And occasionally they might talk into it to clarify something or say what's going on. And it took off. There were like 3,500 people, like 3,000 something people that would monitor this little radio show. And man, they were hard to please too, because <laughs> So I'm in West Virginia in a hotel in the middle of the night trying to find somebody on the sideline of the field that will answer my call. I don't know many people in South Africa, but <laughs> that is willing to hold their phone up. Like to try and organize that from West oh Virginia was a mess. So I would finally get somebody to talk somebody else into putting their phone up next to it. The people would complain that their people were cheering too loud, too close, and it would make a loud noise when the close spectators would cheer or that the umpire was mumbling or that there's, they were very critical about the audio quality of those but I can tell you that was very difficult to do. Since then, I think people have realized the need and the last World Cup was great. It oh was, my God. It, it was what the others should have been. You just needed um, a couple hundred thousand dollars, Daniel. You could have done it the other two. Yeah. Um, shout out to the Frasers and, and that whole crew work club for getting that together. I mean, that's amazing. Before the World Cup, I said, come on, this is 2019. You've got to have live streaming video. And he's like, well, yeah, but do you realize it costs this and this and that? You know, they happen to be in a big drought. You know, they, they had to pay for water, I'm sure. Um, you weren't there in real no, life, I wasn't there. right? No. Okay. The billboard that they had. So this video production team would change from angles, just like you'd see on real TV. And they'd have the score at the bottom. They'd have a highlight, you know, as people were riding back to the, to the lineup or on a whatever penalty or something, you'd actually see the penalty replayed or you'd see that sh shot at goal replayed. And it was awesome. And it's on this big jumbotron on the side of the field, this huge jumbotron with like 
30 people sitting on the trailer around it drinking Bundy. The production value of that, for one, it's awesome for us, but it probably, well, maybe, could even pay for itself or help pay for itself because now you have a real thing you can sell to the people that are uh, sponsoring your tournament. If you're sponsoring a tournament, you say, hey, I'm going to put this banner up in front of 50 people that are here. That's one thing. But if you say, look at this production value that you're gonna, your name's going to be all over it, going to be all over the world. There's a lot of value in that for somebody that's trying to get their name out there. Well, wasn't there a subscription to watch those games? I don't know if you bought it per game or if there was a subscription. And then at some point they made them free. I, I don't remember how that went. I don't know. I saw them in real life. So I thought about watching them afterwards back where I was motivated and making these umpire videos again, getting back into it and showing all these awful things that I thought were happening umpire wise here and there. And I never got motivated enough to do it. So South Africa has a lot of pressure now. Can they pull that off in some way? They're not going to pull off the same quality per se. But Have you have been some? down to any of the high goal stuff? No, I haven't been invited. You, know, you got to know the right people. I think you have to be better than us. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> That too. They have like Land Rover and big high dollar sponsors. I wonder if that stuff is televised, you know, if they have that kind of production there. And if they do, then we have good hope. I think the last time it was in South Africa, they did not. I don't think they had any, any of that. They had a hard time with cell phone service, if I remember right. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure it'll be a phenomenal World Cup. It's just nice when you're not there to be able to watch it. Um, Obviously, I regret not being at the 2019 World Cup. For those people that can't make it, just to be able to watch those games is huge. So speaking of that, there's a streaking incident and it was you know it was kid friendly i mean you weren't naked per se but you were in a onesie right Unitar. i was in some shorts it was cold so i made sure that i had red and blue tape on my nipples and i might have even had like a <laughs> good stars in your nipples right uh, it might have been stars? stars or it might have been just the blue duct tape for american flag type color stuff and i might even had like a happy face on my stomach the eagle face uh, american flag cape everything that we could find so i I heard your podcast with Billy. Then I heard it with Charles. You that was kind us. of my running crew. Those were those were some of my buds. Derek was yeah. in that mix too because he and I were the umpire people there. But well, uh, Derek knows how to be shirtless, so he could help you with that. It doesn't sure. work. It, no, if you're some muscly, good-looking person, you don't even get to do it. No, if, if you're not <laughs> flopping around out there, uh, then it's not worth it. Then you're just showing off. Uh, the, the real brave ones go out there whenever they shouldn't be there, I think. So we had talked about it ahead of time, and Billy was going to go streaking. And he was good for real. I think he was he had a sock that he was going to wear that he was oh. covering that might have had some elastic to keep it on or something. I mean, he and, did it in 2008, right? I mean, he, it's not like he'd never done this. I, I think he – did he do it at, at the uh, – 07 or 08. Yeah. Stewart at the at the Irish test match for the women yeah. or something. I think yeah. that's where it was. That was his shining moment. And his wife was there. She didn't think that was a good idea and made sure that he knew that their marriage was probably, it, it, it was just very important to him. They made sure he didn't do it after her conversation, I think. I don't know all the details. But he Even knew if that he cleaned it up? I, I know he'd been training. He had it one was, ab that he was showing. Yeah, yeah, I think... <laughs> I think maybe all three of us did, but uh, 
<laughs> well, Charles was in pretty good shape. So Charles was thinking, of, we were trying to talk Charles into doing it, and he was kind of thinking about it. Two or three games go into the weekend, uh, nobody stepped up to the plate. And I was like, guys, I can't do it. I have to dress up in this suit and stand up there in the national anthem and pretend like the president of the APA. Um, so we talked Charles into wearing the suit. He dressed up as me and went out there. He's He was a board member at the time, so he's, he's a perfect person to be the representative anyway. I probably had a couple shots of something to work up the nerve. And I have a really good, one of the grooms that we had, Ashley Davis sent me a, a message and it's right before the walk-in. I have the Eagle mask on, I'm carrying the flag and I'm like jogging in place. And all of a sudden I squat down and do the truffle shuffle, kind of shake uh, my belly around. And it's like this quick little clip. And I thought I, I, I couldn't see the eagle eyes very well. You can only see straight ahead like blinders. And I thought for sure at some point I was going to trip over something and just make a fool of myself, roll on the ground and have to jump up and walk it off. I never did fall. And in fact, at the end of it, I had these little kids. So they, they had brought little kids in from the primary school Yep. And every game would have a different busload of kids that would come in. And that was their like field trip for the day. And they all got a piece of paper, a little, a little notepad and a pencil. They yeah. were supposed to write the score or keep up with something, give them something to do. And every one of them wanted the Eagles signature at the end of that, which <laughs> felt pretty famous. No, so there's a really funny picture. One of the professional photographers there posted it. And it's me from the back as I'm running across the crowd and I'm jumping high and clicking my heels together with a flag in one hand and the eagle mask in the other. And I look yeah. like this fit athlete, really good spokesperson for, you know, yes. for the team. He was great. At the exact same time, because I only did that jump kick thing once, somebody in the crowd from the front shot took a picture and sent it to me. And that is a very different story. Uh, that front <laughs> picture, you can see my gut popping. I'm probably making a stupid face. And uh, yeah, it's it's really funny. The In fact, it should be uh, like a sales pitch. Hey, if you want me to take your picture, if you want just anybody to take a picture, you can have one like this. But no, I'm glad we did it. It was fun. And it was clean. It, it, it had an element of clean cleanliness. It was. It was classy. a little risque. At one point, the chief umpire of the IPC was on the sideline of the field, probably as the referee during the game. And I went up as I ran past him and grabbed his head and kissed him on the mouth with the beak oh. of the thing. But it was this big, long thing. And then I ran away. He was somebody that we were meeting with the week before and every day and all that. So he was like this authority figure for me. And all of a sudden, I, I have an excuse to like kind of pick on him and, and be the class clown kind of thing. Yeah, no, I, I'm glad it happened. Uh, I'm okay if it's somebody else next time. But uh, yeah, it was a good time. I want to go back in history here. I feel like you like to dress up because... Oh, no. I saw this picture. I know what you're going to say. It's always on my Facebook feed today. It's getting posted after this podcast. We did is a that fundraiser. What the, is that what the screen is? Is that what the background screen's going to be? Oh, I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> oh, yeah, no. We dressed in drag. You, me, Tanner, and Jake. And we sang a song. Do you remember the name of the song? Yeah. It was I Will Survive. We had prepared for this for five minutes. No. So what happened was the chief umpire at the time... This is umpire related. I just remembered. The chief umpire at the time is Adam Redman. Adam is a super guy, wonderful guy, originally from England. He did not have health insurance. At a tournament the year before or maybe earlier that season at Waldemar, his horse went down. He got clipped in the front. Horse went down. He had a hard fall and was knocked 
knocked unconscious. They pulled him to the sidelines. I went, I actually finished his chukka out on his horse. And sometime after that chukka, he started not being able to figure out where he was and losing his memory, having like a seizure. They ended up having a helicopter come pick him up after he fainted again, thinking he had this major brain damage. He was fine. Uh, he didn't play the rest of the weekend. The helicopter ride was like $10,000, $9,000 something dollars just to get the helicopter ride over there. And he was back that same day. Well, he didn't have that much money. He's a farrier and kind of worked on the farm at Amy's place or somewhere in Colorado at the time. I don't remember. So we had a fundraiser at our tournament. We had a drag show and we had Phil Babe dress up as some hairy French person and we had Mike Thompson go up and dance and we had Chris Pickens with a fart machine in his dress that would just walk around and fart and go do like the uh uh-oh face oopsie well we were gonna win so we had these three high teenage kids adolescent kids with whatever age 15 to 20 probably in that range Um, yeah you're still good looking really good looking back then oh especially in that dress like tom cruise almost (laughs) oh no i don't know yeah but uh i remember tanner got in martha's dress and martha's husband terry this is heather's dad (laughs) heather shuttles dad was telling martha that he looked he wore that that dress better because tanner's this real skinny hot woman apparently (laughs) and jake is like a cowboy guy he is not anybody that you'd ever seen a dress but he was up for it we had choreography and everything i think we won 300 bucks and we donated it to adam for the fund to get him his hospital fees paid i think your family likes to dress up and do karaoke and so that totally fits into the johnson way of life we used to have our tournaments now are themed after one of years that died. I mean, it's not a theme, but it's the John Weber Polo Cross tournament every year that we have. Well, we used to, before that, have theme tournaments. So we'd have a Mardi Gras tournament, or we'd have a uh, Wild West type tournament, or Halloween theme tournament. The umpires would dress up in ponchos, or they'd dress up in sequins, or there'd be some opportunity for some playfulness. And I think the drag one was the Mardi Gras one. I think the umpires had these bright sequin vests that they would umpire in, and it was a Mardi Gras theme party on the Saturday night with the drag show as the main Mm -hmm. stage event. Yeah, we had good times. Let's back up. When Billy did his streak, weren't you the one that was feeding him the alcohol? It sounds like me. I'm definitely the person that wants to be the instigator and not the one doing the committing the crime. I think that's how he told it. Where was it? Billy, Billy. He's like, Billy, here, drink this. Oh, at Waldemar? Or yeah. At, uh, yeah. Uh, oh Camp no, Stewart. yeah, for sure. Yeah, uh, yeah, for Stewart. sure. Yeah, no, I was definitely part of the cheering team, the pregame cheering team, to make sure that he was as proud as he could be before he got out there. Yes. Yeah. I was thankful that Steph sent me that picture. I edited it for the webs, you know, for Facebook. Right. I had to cut out the very the top of the because <laughs> I had to keep it classy. But Steph was nice enough to give that to me. And Billy looked good back then. He still does. I just want to give you credit for the amount of guts it takes to do something like that because there were other people there that were just as well-trained, just just as much experience, just as confident at, in life. But when it came to actually doing it, you're the one that did it, right? Yeah. I just want to give you some credit for well, that. Well, okay, Say so it goes on that same philosophy. If you're going to tell somebody to do something and whine to them that they're not doing it, if given the opportunity, ethically, you have to do it. <laughs> You're not allowed to tell somebody that they should be doing something a certain way if you're not willing to do it that way also. I don't think I wanted to do it. I just thought philosophically, well, I guess ethically that I have to go through with this now. I said it was a good idea. You're just grounded in in this moral foundation. That yeah, streaking was the moral thing to do at the time. <laughs> and it was probably because you had a father that was as tough as he was, would catch you for anything. It's kind of like that preacher's daughter. It was time to rebel and you finally had this opportunity and you took advantage. 
advantage of it. Yeah. With, uh, with polo cross as it is now, I definitely don't want to leave polo cross. My schedule makes it difficult for me to be as involved as I'd like to be. The motivations that I have now, instead of early days where I was trying to push and push and get better and make the World Cup team and do this and this, and then later on with all the umpire push that I had, now I just want to go play and hang out. Like my perfect game, the last, I don't know if this is the last time I played, and Charles Saucy and Nick Cheeseman were my section. It was a November, like a Christmas-themed tournament over at Nick's place. That's the kind of polo cross that, that I want to play. I, I don't need to go win anything, but I want to go talk smack to the person that I'm marking up and us both be laughing as we go down the field kind of a thing. You know, that, you know like – that you want to, across yeah. is really appealing to me. You want to do crocodile races. You yeah. want to do stuff on, under the tent when it's raining. There's so many things. Or I want to sit on the sidelines and tell people next to me that I think those people on the field are doing it wrong. Like that's a good <laughs> part of polo cross. That's a very social event. You know, it's like people sitting around watching a football game. Well, now you get to be there in real life. And the people that are out there on the field that you get to critique are friends and family. Like, it's a pretty neat experience. Yeah, that, I think polo cross will always be family. I'll never be out of polo cross, even if I play very little. There's no way for something that you grew up in. All of my family does polo cross and always will do polo cross. And uh, I will too. Your family has a way of sucking in these East Coast players, ripping them from their homeland, indoctrinating them in your karaoke fun way. I think it's the striking good looks, and it's definitely genetic. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we, I brought Dory in. Tessa brought Ryan Strider in. You came down to Texas before you. But moved I couldn't find there. a woman, apparently. That, I mean, no. No, no, Heather brought Robbie. Billy brought Steph. Yes. And Heather actually brought Billy because Billy was New Mexico also. Yeah. Hannah, Vinny came down from East Coast. When East Coast kind of settled down, first of all, we're a very welcoming area. And when East Coast kind of settled down, a lot of those players ended up relocating that were still involved. Right. If Chris is listening, I mean, I definitely want you involved with this mega clinic at Grand Bay, November 6th. I would love for you to be involved with that if you can be. So I'm playing that I don't know if I'm going to make it down there to the Texas, to the Lone Star Tournament. I'll see you soon enough. Like I said, I appreciate your time. There was a lot of good umpiring stuff that we talked about, and you're an expert on it. And I think you set a foundation that uh, Chris can work off of, our new uh, chief umpire. Well, last thought before we go. I'm kind of a nerd about the umpire stuff, and I don't think that I have all the answers, but I do like to talk about the questions for anybody listening, international or otherwise. If there's something that comes up and you're wondering about it, feel free to shoot me a Facebook message or call me on the phone, and I will more than probably talk your ear off about my thoughts and how I've seen something similar happen in other situations and maybe give you some insight on fixing your problem. I'm kind of a nerd that way and, and welcome any of the communications. So It could be a play on words here. I'm very creative. I see this idea as if someone has a question about umpiring, they can send a voicemail on my sidebar button on my website. We can call it in the D with Daniel. In the D with Daniel. <laughs> we got maybe a better name out there, but they can ask I, a question and you can answer it on the podcast as a segment. There's a there's a message. Oh, you mean as a as like an answer a question and answer segment after the yeah, fact. Yeah, they can leave a voicemail message with a question or if someone gives you any question outside of that and then you can answer it on the podcast or you can answer a series of questions. That would be an awesome idea. Yeah, so keep that, I'm into keep that it. in mind. Well, All it's right. been good. Yeah, much love to the family, Dory, Luke. Thanks for your time, man. 
You too. Maybe I'll see you at the Mega Clinic. Sounds good. All, All right. right. Be see safe. Bye. See ya. Hey there. Thanks for listening to this episode. I'm so impressed with Daniel and his honesty about his attempts to improve umpiring in our association. He keeps it real. He's really the prodigal son of Texas, and we hope he continues to represent his monarchical family roots with honor and class. Let's talk about connection. I have a sidebar voicemail button on my website. The goals of this podcast are to educate people by connecting people together from all over the world. You can use my sidebar button to ask me questions, just as we discussed with Daniel Johnson about umpiring, if you have questions for that. If you have comments about what I talk about on the podcast with my guests. Also, I'd love to share your tournament results. Feel free to use my voicemail sidebar button for a chance to be featured on one of my episodes. What a great way to recognize the players at your tournament by being on my podcast. I look forward to hearing from you soon. Here on Chugga Talk, we appreciate your feedback. Have you enjoyed the show? Do you have questions or comments? Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. For a chance to be featured on the show, leave a voicemail by finding the Send Voicemail Sidebar button on PoloCrossMadeSimple.com. For more PoloCross coaching, go to PoloCrossMadeSimple.com. You'll find ebooks on how to become a great player and even on how to become a great coach. Find me on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, have a good one.